This is a HeadGum Podcast. Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's asleep. Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. The talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I am delighted to bring you my interview with David Simon, who's probably best known as being the creator of The Wire, in addition to Generation Kill, Treme, Show Me a Hero. Um, He's currently shooting The Deuce. Um, He also did Homicide and The Corner. Um, Some people think that Sopranos was the precursor to allowing a show like The Wire on, but actually um, it had been in works before then. Um, Simon, who had started out as a reporter at the Baltimore Sun, um, he was actually hired by Steve Luxenberg, who is one of the, at least as far as I know, since I haven't had many editors, but uh, one of the kindest and shrewdest people I know. And I'm sad that I didn't get to speak with David Simon about that, but that's because we covered so many things that don't normally get to be... um, done in an interview for David Simon when he's doing press junkets. Namely, he got to play with the band. Um, and we are actually going to go on the road now as a um, touring band. So if you have weddings or bar mitzvahs, um, or, you know, if if Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings needs an opener, we are available. Um, I also was sad not to get to talk more about The Wire, um, but there are so many great interviews about it that I wanted to ensure that he got to talk about things that he enjoys talking about, but I will never forget when it first came out, my friends um, Googled Idris Elba, um, who's so uh, such a fine actor. I think she was Googling him for other reasons and it turned out she was not alone. So here's this actor in an ensemble production with probably one of the biggest casts <laughs> and all that would come up if you type in Idris Elba was boyfriend, husband, wife, girlfriend, affair. <laughs> like It was so clear that uh, she and I were joining gazillions of women um, in that. I, what I find one of the many fascinating parts of The Wire, I will say, is that um, David had real people in it and people who had been put in jail by another person were in similar scenes and and I feel like it as much as it was a unbelievable experience for those of us watching I can't even imagine what it was like for those people in it and to see um, fiction and reality blurred um, so deftly in a way that didn't contort it or idealize it Um, but gave it the integrity it deserved so he is in town because he is shooting the deuce we talked about his uh twitter debate with edward snowden and i didn't get to hear about the dryer incident apparently he was in a dryer as a kid but we talked about so much more so i hope you enjoy our interview i want to do a special shout out to russ and daughters um thank you for sponsoring this podcast and to headgum we are now officially a part of headgum that means that you can chew gum in your head. I don't know where, how they came up with the name, but it's a wonderful network that Jake and Amir started. Happy to be a part of it. Check out their other podcasts after you listen to ours. And um, as always, if you want to donate, we will happily accept. So without further ado, enjoy this interview with the one and only David Simon. David Judah Simon, just in case anyone was confused whether he was Jewish or not. David Judah Simon. <laughs>
Soviet Jews, I think it's a great place to start. Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid growing up in DC, thanks to your dad amongst many other people, but, but certainly uh, um, helpful from him, you know, advocating to help Soviet Jewry. Um, How did you know about that? Uh, because I grew up in DC and I'm Jewish. We probably like <laughs> held the same signs at the yes. same in front yes. of the Soviet embassy. Yes, and, yes, yeah. free Soviet Jews, and this was because your your father. But I didn't have to do much. I the hardest I had to endure was having um, Soviet Jews sleep on the floor. When I'd wake up, I'd be my mom would be like, "Here's someone." Um, I, I just had to negotiate around like B'nai B'rith women in their in their mumus. <laughs> it was terrifying for my adolescence. Um, but I couldn't get over that your your father was held hostage. Yeah, you know, in all the times I've ever done interviews, this has never come up before. You're, re you're the failings of researchers that you have back there. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah, my dad, my dad was held hostage by the Hanafi Muslims in, uh, I was in high school in 77, uh, um, along with about 100 other people. It wasn't just him. It was, yeah, they took over the B'nai building where my dad worked, the Islamic Center, and the DC, uh, the district building. And then we have, got a picture of him from your website. Oh my God, oh my God yeah. Because there was a great story on it that you wrote about his yeah. uh, food issues. Yeah, he had food <laughs> issues. We all, what Jews don't. Um, my dad, my dad, um, he had no palate except for salt. So he was the quintessential Jewish eater. He could taste salt. He could taste two flavors. One of them was salt and one of them wasn't. And, um, <laughs> and that was him. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a frightening thing. And I grew up in that household trying to get to other food groups. And, <laughs> but the other thing about my dad, which about the Hanafi thing, was this is a true story. I have to tell this now because you yeah. brought this up. I got to go with it. Um, I was in high school. I was a junior in high school. And the, you know how you'd like, you know, you're, I was trying to be the class clown. I was acting out. There was a girl named Margaret Bernal who had big eye, big traffic light eyes. I, that's anyway. the only thing that were big that you noticed? What? No. So. <laughs> no, yeah, I was, I was pure. I was pure. But I, I just had a crush on her, and it was, it was sixth period English. And so we had this substitute teacher, and I was like, I tortured the substitute. You know how that goes. You know, like a class clown ruining the class for the substitute. And I went so far that I knew I would be in trouble the next day. I knew this. So fifth period, I'm in the student newspaper office, and the phone rings, and it's my older sister. And she says, you gotta, I'm coming to get you. There's something going on at the building. Dad's been taken hostage turn on the TV, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And I turn on the TV and sure enough, it's on all the DC's channels that they've taken over these buildings. And um, I, I went to my sixth period class and, and the, the head of the English department and the teacher were both there waiting to punish me. And I mean, I think, I think I was probably suspended. I mean, it was just, they were so furious. And I walked into that class and I swear to God, there, there are students who will still remember this who went to high school with me. I said- BCC. Yeah, BCC. I said, I said, Mrs. Gallagher, I'm really sorry. Um, my dad's been taken hostage by a group of crazed religious gunmen. I have to go. So. <laughs> and she, she and Mrs. Hurd, they followed me down the hall screaming at me. The kids in the class were like, man, he's really gone over the edge. You know, anyway, I came back on the Monday after, obviously, on the everyone knew what happened a few hours later. But I came back on the Monday. Nothing was ever said, ever. It was, yeah, it Were was, you grateful to him just for getting was, held hostage? I was almost grateful to the terrorists. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, you know, it was just, I, I'll, I'll never, I mean, I said it, even as I said it, I was like, you really shouldn't be joking about this, but I, I couldn't help it. It was just there. So. 
And your mom went back to school uh, while you were in college at the same time, and she, I understand, graduated Phi Beta Kappa while you were failing out? It took me five years. to. She beat me out of college. She's, <laughs> she went back to school. Um, she dropped out of Hunter University, uh, Hunter College here, um, when she was in her 20s to get married. And she went back, um, and she was like taking nine, 12 credits a semester, and she beat me out of college. It took me five years, five years and two summer sessions. It's kind of humiliating. Well, it's humiliating, but it's also humiliating about the education system, because at the same time, you're getting more bylines than hired writers, I believe, at, at the Baltimore Sun. You were interning at the Baltimore Sun? I find all this research into the esoterica <laughs> of my life to be unnerving. <laughs> Just wait. And inappropriate. <laughs> Can't we just do the usual, like, why'd you kill Stringer Bell shit? Then, you know, uh, just, this is creepy. This is, I mean, isn't it? You know, you know, yeah, Omar was the coolest. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh... Jesus, what was the question? What part of... Who is this in the... In the that's you in the photo. <laughs> that's me. Yeah, I, I was a little... I, was, I had, had a little bit of hair left. Uh, you had that a lot is, of hair there. That is... Um, t uh, dead center is Bob McAllister. Uh, Bo Bob Bowman is on the... I guess on my... Um, and then that right there is the philosopher king of the Baltimore Homicide Unit, Terrence Patrick McClarney. Truly one of the most brilliant men I've ever met, and, and one of the funniest. Um, just a great guy. Did, did any of them come work on The Wire? Um, no, they wanted nothing to do with The Wire. Uh, <laughs> there, were some, there were some real detectives who had cameos and stuff, but uh, Terry by then was a commander. Um, in fact, he commanded the homicide unit later on. And the other two guys were, uh, I don't know what happened to Bob Bowman, but Bob McAllister ended up working for the Federal Public Defender's Office, so he had like an honest dignified job. <laughs> He's getting nowhere near television. But Terry, um, I still see Terry now and then, and he is genuinely one of the funniest human beings. I wish I could remember a great Terry line for you now. Well, uh, I thought the, your report card, um, I thought that was funny from... <laughs> <laughs> from this is good, yeah. Terry, Terry filled out, well, this is what's known as a green sheet, which is like everybody in his squad gets filled out a green sheet twice a year. The green sheet basically is a supervisory... Um, document that tells you where you, you're supposed to improve and the worst green sheet in the squad is like you're probably going to get bumped the best green sheet you, you know I don't know what they, they, they get to, you get to you know steal another 10 hours of overtime I don't know and this but, is when you were interning at the Baltimore Sun correct no this no, was at, at this the was the year I spent in the homicide unit to it. write a book okay which was the basis of the what show got homicide. Me, what got me out of journalism which was the you know I wrote a book about yeah. it, the homicide unit it got picked up made into a television show and you know, yeah. I never, but as you can see, it says, let's see, intern Simon never acts as OI's officer in charge as there are others more qualified. He has been observed in the company of females on several occasions. However, his relationship with these women is unclear <laughs> and his true sexual orientation remains in doubt. <laughs> intern Simon has been a prized relation, uh, a prized uh, relative to the department's alcohol abuse program, yeah, well. <laughs> um, and so forth. And so, uh, anyway, one day I came in from, um, I came in and um, looked in my mailbox. They gave me a mailbox, and that was in there. 
And Terry, Terry was just great for that. The, the other thing is they were great at practical jokes. They, they, they played an enormous number of practical jokes. Um, I did bring a, a clip from Homicide because I believe this is your first script that got on. Um, you believe I it. Hope, it's probably true it, with, with all the research you've done. I'm <laughs> um, not going to contradict you. It's terrifying. While, while, we, while we look for the clip, I just wanted to ask about your relationship with Levin, uh, Barry Levinson and Tom Fantana. Because we're lovers. Okay. <laughs> That's what I needed to know. Re- relationship. <laughs> didn't you, did that you, on the didn't you oh, read the report card? Um, yeah. Wait. Oh, I guess we're playing the clip before I even knew it. It all happened so fast. Yeah, but about someone murdered your wife, you'd remember all the faces, wouldn't you? But I'm just an average guy. All I remember is the gun. I just stood there, staring at it. I just stood there and I watched him kill my wife. I didn't do anything. Yeah, but you. You would have done something, wouldn't you? I'm not saying I would have done anything. Oh, you're not saying anything, but you're thinking it, aren't you? I mean, hell, everybody's thinking it. Even my own son thinks it. Like there's a whole list of things that you're supposed to do before your wife. You know, maybe you grab the gun or you, you shield her. And if you can't do anything, at least remember the faces so when the police show you a bunch of pictures, you can point them out. Here! Hmm. A little light comedy. <laughs> I know, I go high and low. I wouldn't have, I, I got my whole uh, career doing television because Robin Williams took that part. I mean, and, and that was all basic. And it went the second season. They, they would written the script before. Can you tell people, just frame it for people, um, you know, how you got involved in Homicide? You'd written the book? I, I wrote the book that it was based on, but it really, it became its own creature, but... It had, they put it on right after the Super Bowl, but then it was up against, I forget, like Home Improvement. Or, it, got, it, got, it got killed. <laughs> Stiff. It got Stiff killed on, on yes. Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday night. And um, they were not going to re- renew it. And Tom Fontana, um, bless his heart, managed to talk, I think, Don Overmeyer, who, uh, whoever was yeah. um, uh, head of NBC. Into I love fo- that you're turning to me. I actually don't it, know yeah, this one. Okay. <laughs> Looking, looking for help. You know, I'm in middle age. Names are like, they're out there on the horizon somewhere. I'm pulling them in. Um, but he got four episodes. I mean, if you know anything about a TV season, four episodes is like a, a, a drunken joke, you know? Yeah. So there were four episodes, and it had to pull better numbers or they were going to cancel the, the show. And uh, Barry Levinson went out and with a script that, uh, I, I wrote it for the first season, but it was so dark and depressing, in case you couldn't tell, um, that... NBC wouldn't do it. They said, no, that's, no, you know, tourist wife gets killed in her harbor. No, we're not playing that. Yeah. So they held it, but then they showed it to Robin Williams. It was actually Mark Johnson, uh, Barry's oh. partner, who um, showed it to him. And, Bar- and he, and, you know, a- feature actors at this time doing TV, that didn't happen. That was a yeah. big deal. So he decided to do this, and the show pulled like a 35 share for that episode. And um, they, it ran another 100 I mean, it went, had another six seasons. So, like, you know, Robin Williams, bless his soul, I had a TV career uh, because of him. So that was just a, you know. He's such a beautiful man. I'm so grateful. Um, you also got a lot in that script, and I think it was your first time switching to not getting everything you've written. Right. Uh, half of it was rewritten. Uh, and I thought, well, I fucked up. Because, you know, if you're a newspaper man and half of your story's rewritten, you fucked up. You know? So I thought, I didn't even bother to go back to them for a second script. 
And I was shocked when third season they came back and said, would you like another? And I gave it to my co-writer on the script, uh, Dave Mills. And then they came back fourth season and said, you want another? So, um, but I didn't, I think I took it unseriously. I thought I was going to stay a newspaper reporter. Um, and, and then when I got it, um, when it didn't happen exactly as I thought, and, and of course, a lot of this was, when I wrote it, there was no Robin Williams. So I wrote like a lot of scenes for the three gun, uh, the guys who did the robbery, because that was, that was my meat and potatoes. Of, I was writing these you know, black guys from West Baltimore, uh, one of whom was the shooter and two of whom were not. And, and I'm writing that, and of course, once Robin Williams says, I'll be the guest star, they're throwing those pages. I mean, it's like, write more for Robin Williams. So a lot of that stuff was, um, I think that one was me, but um, there were a lot of Robin Williams scenes that were written by Jimmy Ashimura and Tom Fontana. So I felt like, there goes my TV career. I didn't know what I was doing. But now that I'm in it, if you, if you do a freelance script and you get 10, 20 pages of, of 60 pages, that's, that, you know, you, you're all right. You, you, you know, some of this stuff goes right back in the typewriter because it's hard to get the voice of a show. One of your writers, um, Pelicanos, he was quoted in an article saying that he, he, that he gets about 30% in. No, it's a lie. He okay. gets most of his stuff in. <laughs> First script, he got like 30%. You know, second script, 60 You know, I mean, the guys who sort of see what you're doing to it and, and can react, they're going to make it. The ones who are like, well, you know, I gave you a good 30% and you fucked up the rest of it, they're probably not going to make it, you know. It's a clue. So. But he's, you know, I'm working with him on a project now, so he's still What's that it. project? It's about New York. It's about New York. Oh, The Deuce? Yeah, it's about The Deuce. So let me ask you about this. You've written all of these shows that have to do with things that you have so much experience with. Um, porn, thank you. Yeah, so I just I wanted, to, I wanted to hear, what are you a connoisseur of porn? Are you an aficionado? Were you a dancer and we don't know I, about it? I don't even own a pornograph. No, I mean, no, the reason we wanted to do the show was, no. uh, if you think about it, pornography has become, it's endemic to, to the entire society. I mean, I, you know, I just went through the life of a, of a teenage boy, you know. Your I, son? Yeah. Okay. No, just some random teenage boy. <laughs> that would be a, just grab one off the corner and we'll talk about it later. <laughs> no, um, you know, I've, I've sort of seen what passes for modern sex education now in, in our, I mean, you know, what, what was brown paper bag in 1968, you know, come to about 1972, four years later, became popular culture. Um, so uh, George and I wanted to, we ended up talking to these guys who were there at the beginning of, you all remember Times Square when it went to hell, right? Before, before Disney got it. Um, that, that 14 year period from like when, you know, one minute it was, it was beneath the counter, the next minute Jack Nicholson was walking the red carpet on 42nd Street to go to Deep Throat for the premiere. And then, you know, and then it all got mean from there. And, uh, and then it all dis started disappearing in 86, once, uh, once they kicked in the doors. So that 14-year period, having talked to a lot of the people who were there, these people are like pioneers of, the in of an industry that is now billions. Yeah. And, and sort of totally you know, predominates from everything from beer commercials to hardcore porn. It, it's, become our, it's become part of our you know, sort of cultural psychology. And you switched to working with uh, famous actors in, you know, with a Show Me Hero. I was, I was just curious, like, was that a conscious decision? Because... <laughs> yeah, it was conscious. Uh, <laughs> it was conscious because, 
It, just try to get six hours made on, on housing policy. And, um, <laughs> you know, you, you, you'd go grab for some Oscar Isaac, too. You know, you'd be... I would grab for Oscar Isaac any day of the uh, week. It doesn't... I don't need to include you know, housing I'm, policy. I, I was... I was uh, and Idris Elba. I didn't mean to, you know, I needed, pretend I needed, uh, I needed people to sign on for that project to get it made. Yeah, and, and, and to their great Even credit, they the did. Even with the success of The Wire. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of burned through that with Tremay, you know. Like, okay. You'll let me make anything? Okay, you know. So, um, no, I, to, get, to get those six hours made, they wanted, they wanted some good lead actors. And, and, uh, um, and uh, to their credit, you know, they're reading scripts about municipal government and, and housing. It's a, it's a whole, it's a real story. It's still happening, um, a, you know, a couple happening hours everywhere. Up. It happens yeah. everywhere they try to, yeah. um, uh, anywhere they try to put... Uh, Integrated housing, you know, even in the most modest way, into a, into a white neighborhood anywhere in America. It's happening in Dallas, happened in Baltimore. Uh, right now, it's happening two towns north. Of, the, the, the piece was set in Yonkers, in Yonkers yeah. but now it's happening in Terrytown. So it's it just keeps you know where, wherever they go, they do the same thing, which is lose their minds. Um, I I want to s- switch to um, I wanted to ask about Carl Bernstein, how you hooked up with him. You're you're working with him on a project as well. Relationships with Levinson hooking up with Carl Bernstein. I'm sorry. What are you trying to I get apologize. Me to say? <laughs> Did I meet with him? Did that report just... card has just scarred you forever. I know, I know. It set the tone a for little, all the a, questions. A little bit of innuendo. And, you know, um, Carl had an idea, um, which was correct, uh, that he came to me with a few years ago. By the way, another Silver Spring, Maryland boy, D.C. suburbs, Jewish. I'm glad it's finally working out for us. Right. Well, especially in show business. You know, I know. They barred the door for so long. You know? um, it's just been so hard to get in there. You know, it's, it's hell getting to the... Um, so he, it's uh, a little easier for Jewish boys than... Yeah. You know, he had a... In life in general, but yeah. He had... Um, <laughs> he had, uh, he had a, Carl had a very simple argument, which is absolutely correct, which is that despite how fucked up things seem right now in this particular presidential election cycle. Um, the presidency is still the presidency, and the Supreme Court, no matter where the votes are, is still the Supreme Court, but the part of government that's broken, the part of government that has been moneyed and purchased, uh, is, is Congress, is, is the legislative branch. And, and there, you know, you can, buy, you can buy a congressman for, you know, it's all they do is go to a call room a block away from uh, from Capitol Hill, and they, they they sit there with the donor lists, and they spend three four hours a day raising money. That's their every day. I mean, it's 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 a disaster. So his argument was, we should do a piece about Capitol Hill, about what really goes on. And and I listened to this, and I said, you're a fucking idiot. You know, there's nobody to root for. You know, I mean, I, uh, who? Because they're all they're all have blood on their hands. Well, I mean, it's just like. You know, have you seen the percentages of what Americans think of of Congress? You know, it's like, you know, okay, 42% like the president, 48% hate him, 7% like Congress. I mean, nobody. <laughs> I'm giving you real numbers now. So it's like you're going to put a show on television, and we're going to have some, we're going to be like, like Congress people are going to, you know, there's no, there's, we're not going to last three episodes. And so I, I pushed him off and pushed him off and pushed him off. And for two years, he had, a, he, he had sold it to somebody else. I was like, no, I'm not taking this into HBO. 
And finally, HBO comes to me and says, we want to do a show on government. <laughs> and I was, oh, okay, Carl, come back. So uh, he'll tell you this, the same thing. It was like two years after like telling him, no, there's no way that, you know. And HBO bought that pilot without, I'm still working on the pilot script. I mean, you know, we're doing the meetings now, but they bought it because they want it. So God bless them, but... Um, speaking about government stuff, I was so I, I was on Twitter when I saw you uh, tweeting with uh, Snowden. That was weird. That was crazy. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because he's not here. He's in. I mean, it's even no, a different time it's, zone. It's almost not fair. It's almost not fair. He's not here to. to I I can win the argument. Um, but he got on. He actually tweeted something about the wire, which was he was just being playful, um, as is his wont. Um, he, he, this report came out that said the guys who did the Paris terrorist attacks didn't use encryption because now the big fights, of course, over Apple and encryption. And you know, he's trying to argue that the government has no should have no interest in trying to upset encry encrypted material. So he said, "Oh, look, they didn't use encryption. They used burners. They used they used uh, disposable cell phones to uh, to do that." And he says, "So you know." Um, they should, they should, uh, the FBI should question David Simon. So I, I got on the, the internet and I didn't think, like he's got two million followers, you know, I didn't think he was gonna respond, but I said, you know, that's kind of an argument for maybe monitoring disposable cell phones, which is kind of the metadata program that you blew up at the beginning of this, which it is. So he was literally like shifting and saying, oh, it's not encryption, pay no attention to my right hand, which just gave up everything we were trying to do with metadata. You know, so, I mean, if you know, understand metadata, that's what they were trying to do, which is they get, a, they, get a, they, they get onto a cell phone number in Tajikistan or where, you know, wherever, and they're trying to run it very fast through a haystack of all the call data to see, is, are they in touch with anybody? And of course, if the phone's about to be discarded, if it only has a shelf life of a day or two days or three days, then you want to do this as fast as possible, which was the argument from the big data pile. At the so NSA's I thought people. his argument was sort of presuming that people were guilty before they were innocent and, and, and that it was an expansive... He's got a lot of arguments, but, but the one that, you know, listen, having done a lot of wiretap cases as a reporter, I understand that DNRs are a stage before anybody's listening to your calls, and there, was, there is a, t a strategic argument to having... If, you, if you're trying to run a needle through a haystack, you've got to build a haystack so you can run it through very fast. And that's what the NSA was arguing for. Now, whether or not you believe they should have that haystack, there's lots of different arguments. I'm not saying that, that it's not something we should be discussing. And, and all credit to Snowden for starting the discussion. But this was a little bit of chutzpah, to use another Yiddish term, of, oh, it's not encryption, so we're fine. Wait a sec. You know, a year ago, I mean, the NSA was working on a program so that if you kept switching off your cell phone, and you kept doing that repeatedly through the day, that would be t like, wait a sec, some guy has a cell phone in Lahore, Pakistan, and it keeps going on and off, so it's on only you know, for 20 minutes a day? That's, a, that's an algorithm, we can chase that, we yeah. can try to isolate that. So it's like, Because well, they don't have Verizon and AT&T, so you can't blame them. Right, so then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he tweets back. <laughs> and here, here he comes, and he's going like, well, you know, but the average shelf life of a cell phone is, you know, is, is, is days or not minutes in, in, yes. in terrorism. And I said, I don't know, you know, in Baltimore where the people don't have a lot of money and where you can buy a cell phone, but, you know, they got more money than they got in, in, in you know, the wilds of, of Pakistan. And they got more 7-Elevens where you can buy, you know. Some of these guys don't turn them out 
you know, they don't turn over their cell phones for two days, three days, sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks. You know, you're not, in a, in a criminal conspiracy, you're not trying to catch the, the master criminal, you're trying to catch the sloppiest, laziest fucker. That's, you know, and you just told them all, you know, a year ago, don't be sloppy lazy because they're listening to you. So it's like, and then, I, then it was back and forth. And, and, um, and I thought, and it's after about an hour and a half, I lost them. I had to go, I had to, go to my mother's house. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I got to take the grandkid over to my mother's house. And then at some point, I said something else that pissed him off, and he came back later in the day. So I had an adventure on Twitter with um, it was, and, and uh, we were very polite with each other. We were very polite. Oh, more than polite. I mean, it was a, he was excited to be talking to you? It seemed like no, no. no, no. I think he was just you know, um, I think I think I stepped on a little point. Um, speaking of criminals, though, I really the the. Crazy. The last question I want to ask you, I was going to ask you a lot of questions, but I do want to give you a chance to play. But the last question I am going to ask you about speaking about criminals. I get to play with the band? Yes. After this one last question, how did you, um, speaking of criminals, how how did you pilfer this uh, martini shaker um, from uh, Camp David? I didn't. didn't. It followed me home. (laughs) You can buy them. Oh, I thought you really took it. You didn't read the story carefully. It said, <laughs> if, you read, if you read the little entry carefully, it says, you know, yeah, I, I'm joking about sneaking it past the I green guards. I thought it was real. But then it says the price tag. It actually says the cost of it oh, at yeah, the yeah. gift shop. But I thought the whole, I thought you were putting us off so that we didn't feel bad. Do you think I would we, try to steal something from Camp David? I would. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, is what I meant to say. But, because I... Well, you had written Camp Daniel, and so I was like, oh, he's trying to make us not feel bad that he can't tell us that he went there because he has such a glamorous life. Uh, I, you, uh, the president wasn't there. Yeah. Oh. I was there for, for something with the, because uh, yeah. the show me hero with the HUD secretary. Oh, well, forget that. Right, All right. Exactly, exactly. No president. <laughs> Although I did bowl. Um, yeah, at, at the, there's you bowled like, really there's, well. No, there's two I lanes. One, it was over 100. It was over 100. There, was, there were two lanes. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. good. Dwight Eisenhower good. put in the two bowling lanes they have at Camp David, and you're allowed to bowl, and they, they only have a couple of instructions for you, one of which is um, you can't use the president's ball, um, which is right there, and you yes. can't use Michelle Obama's ball or, or the kids. They, I mean, like, there were four balls that were, <laughs> but you can use any other ball, and you can, and, you know, please use shoes, so I put on my bowling shoes. And I bowled 127, and I was pretty proud of that. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. I mean, it's not like I've been bowling a lot, so I was pretty proud of 127. (laughs) And then at some point, um, midway through, you know, uh, a gutter ball or two, I look up, and there's a a huge picture from one of the White House um, photographers of Obama. And I know it's real because there were other names that he he was bowling in a foursome, and it's just him, and he's pointing with his finger to the score, the overhead score. And he's, he's bold like, you know, a 225. Yeah. I mean, he's like, he's the president of the United States and he's bowling 225, you know? <laughs> it's kind of unnerving, you know? And, yeah, that he's good at and something the else. the look on his face was just this. It was so like, yeah, I know. It was just like. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> Obama's got big balls. It was, it was just like, and he's and like. you don't touch him. And he's looking at you, and you're just looking, at, and like you realize that your, your, your electronic 127 score that you were so proud of, it's now going into the National Archives somewhere. Right, right. You know, David right. Simon bowled a 127, <laughs> you know, and, and he's, you know, that's probably, you know, I mean, 
I don't know, the presidents after him are going to want to take that shit down because it's just unnerving. Well, I have so many questions about The Wire, about um, your current project, so I'm just going to ask if, if, if you can do one song, but if you can come back another time so we can keep talking. Sure. Can I do two songs next time? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm really thrilled to have you do a song. I know that Treme um, was this beautiful, uh, I, I know you're not going to hate the word Valentine, but I'm going to use it, to musicians and music. And um, I, I know I... It's, Treme. I okay, good. I, I won't say anything bad about it. I already made a joke at its expense. I won't do enough. I thought you were going to make fun of me using the word Valentine. No. Okay, no, Valentine good. was the nice, you know, uh, okay, nicest good. thing you've said. Oh. <laughs> I, I like Valentine. To a brilliant show. Um, and... Um, Anyways, I, so I'm really thrilled to have you um, play music because I, 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 I think this is your first time debuting at Joe's Pub, playing music, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this was not exactly planned, but let's, let's make it happen. I'm going to play guitar with these boys. Slope co-op tote bag. 
You know? um, I got that. I also, Homer... They, they kill for that shit in Baltimore. They really do. Homer Steinwise, um, who's been on the show um, and is a drummer oh, for Sharon Jones and the Dab Kings. Um, Let me see. Got you these Dap, vinyls. Dap Tone Records. Dap Tone Records. And he also gave you Charles Bradley, both him and, and Binky Is that Riptide. the new one? Is that the new yes. Charles Bradley? Yes. Oh, man. So good. And then the Bobby Cannavale, who's been on the show, recommended this book for you, um, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire. Have you read this? No. Okay, great. And we got you some food from Russ and Daughters. And I got you a um, no button. It's a red button that you can press now that you're going to be back in production and you also have a toddler. So I thought that that would be a good um, <laughs> gift. It has been a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you here. Can Thank we bring you up so the drawing, much. please? That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. If you uh, didn't, weren't already in love with his shows, I think you will be now. And I, I so value that. Um, in addition to being an excellent writer and visionary, uh, Simon is also a mensch and clearly has a moral compass, and it comes through um, in his efforts. It's one thing to have ambition; it's another thing to want to do good things with it and that intention is clear um thank you for listening thank you to headgum and i'll see you next week next wednesday have a good one that was a headgum podcast